the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And it is a fascinating, fascinating day as we're heading towards the uh, New Year's Eve, uh, New Year's weekend. Uh, turn in the calendar. Amazing time. Don't forget to turn your calendar and make sure to sign up at ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the uh, daily email, the wink, what you need to know, which goes into your email box every morning. 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific. People across the country get that. What you need to know, the wink, the daily wink, and an email. Go to ProAmericaReport.com, sign up there. And also, this first segment of the program is always called the wink also. It's what you need to know. And today, what you need to know is the January 6th Select Committee is limping towards the finish line. But let me please remind you, and I do this also as a reminder to the Speaker of the House, the Republican Speaker of the House, may it be Kevin McCarthy, may it be someone else, I don't know, but I want to remind the leadership in the Republican Party party of this fact, these set of facts, the January 6th select committee that has spent 18 months and millions and millions of dollars to promote its view, its narrative about what happened on January 6th is a complete and utter Pelosi political hit job. And I'm not making that up. This was not a select committee that was passed by the House, passed by the House or Senate. It was incapable of being passed in that way. Because when a select committee is passed by the House or Senate, it actually is has it's a resolution. And the resolution has all kinds of um, uh, rules in it. It will say, you know, this committee will dissolve on such and such a date. This committee will have this budget. This committee will begin on such and such a date. This committee will have these contours, uh, this jurisdiction. And it would be the, prog- uh, the, the product of negotiation between uh, the the different parties in the House and the different factions within the political party in power. Well, Pelosi couldn't get the committee she wanted, the select committee she wanted, because Kevin McCarthy made clear Republicans weren't just going to put on lightweights, they were going to put on fighters. And once that became clear to Pelosi, she backed out. And the negotiations with Republicans in the House and Senate to try to come up with a committee to investigate broke down. And instead... She went to her office. She looked into the slush fund, the amounts of money that she controls as Speaker of the House, the third most powerful position in American government after the president and that's tied with the, uh, uh, president, the president of the United States and the president of the Senate, the head of the Senate, the majority leader. And so she said, oh, I got all this money. I'm, the, I'm, I'm a dictator. You know, the House the Speaker of the House in America, a political life, has a ton of power, control over the budget, lots of money and control over the Capitol Police. So she said, I, if I can't get a real select committee the way we usually do it, I'll just make up a Pelosi committee, the Pelosi political hit job, hit committee, show trial. And the committee was created. It was called a select committee, but it was not a select committee in the normal course of business. It was just created out of whole cloth. It didn't have rules on what it could cover. The rules were made up as they went along. It didn't have rules that were legally rules, binding rules. They had some things they talked about publicly. It didn't have an ending date. It didn't have a legal requirement of a report. It didn't have a budget. It didn't lay out staff. It was just a Pelosi creation 
And usually when big government, big powerful government, political operatives like Pelosi create something, you can expect some cynicism from the media. In this case, you don't get that because the narrative machine is big government, Pelosi, big media, all the cable networks and everybody else and big tech. And they wanted the narrative that they have pushed on the country for 18 months They hired an ABC television producer to create these uh, productions where they sit and they made for TV shows and they create all this stuff and they didn't pay attention to any of the. uh, uh, Well, I don't know what you think were the priorities, but as to January 6th, there were two pipe bombs that were aimed at elected officials. We know nothing about them. There were individuals like Ray Epps, we'll talk about in a moment, who were active in the run up and they were never uh, revealed. They weren't arrested. They're nothing. We just don't know anything about them. They actually leaked his transcript or they uh, uh, trickled uh, some of the transcripts out, including Ray Epps. And basically he was there to help his son, he says, Uh, even though he was demanding, he was commanding people to go into the Capitol the next day. He says he just went there with his son uh, to protect his son. He brought some uh, bandages. Uh, Somebody's lying. But here's the point. The made up Pelosi committee, the political hit job committee, the political show trial that was made up all of it. And that's why they could put uh, Cheney and Kinzinger on without the permission of the of the minority leader. Usually you have to work with a minority leader. They didn't. It was just made up. And here's the thing. It failed. It failed in the sense that there was no smoking gun. There was no real evidence of anything other than, uh, you know, people having a huge rally and then some people acting stupid and, and all that. And, and, and they tried as best they could. They realized it was not working. Most of the country looked up and said, ah, oh, there's something going on here. Um, you know, something, this is something weird with these people doing all these select committees. And Liz Cheney lost her race for reelection. Adam Kinzinger didn't run for reelection. I mean, politically, it's a disaster. It didn't work for Pelosi, but it did work. For a third, maybe half of the country who think January 6th was an armed insurrection and they've they've been fed a lie that changed what they think about the country. And here's my warning to the Republican speaker, Kevin McCarthy, if it's him, whoever it is, if you decide to become like the Democrats and use power to make your argument, you'll have a chance to break the January 6th hoax. But if you decide to fall for the the rules requirements, the process requirements that the left will now be demanding and the media will be demanding, they'll say, oh, if you're going to do something, the new speaker should not start by betraying the uh, comedy of all the people in the uh, body and he should he should do a select committee by the rules, blah, 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 and he'll fall for it. He might. She might. I don't know who it'll be. They shouldn't. They should take the Pelosi political committee and they should just change the name. In fact, they shouldn't change the name. They should say they should issue a very simple statement. The Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, on the first day in office should release this following statement. Too many questions remain unanswered about January 6th. And therefore, I am continuing the January 6th Select Committee as it was designed by Nancy Pelosi, period. I will be announcing the members and chairmanship uh, in the next day or two. And instead of trying to do a new committee that passes a a resolution in the House that has rules that the left and the moderates in the Republican Party negotiate and the Democrats demand and the media demands and big tech demands and the grassroots demand. The Republicans in power should simply say there's more to be done because earlier on Thursday, the um, select committee released Ray Epps's testimony. And in it, Ray Epps, who the only thing we've seen of Ray Epps in the last year and a half 
were the videos of him on January 5th calling for the the violation of the U.S. Capitol, saying we have to go tomorrow and, and we have to enter the Capitol. And people yelling at him, calling him fed, fed, fed. Say, That's all we saw until the transcript dropped on Thursday morning. And when the transcript dropped, he says... He sure worried about the 2020 election. He and his wife were worried about it. He didn't decide to go to January 6th until January 1st when his uh, son uh, told him he was going. And he wanted to go to protect his son. And he brought a tourniquet and some bandages. He was just there to protect people. What? All we've seen for 18 months is the images of him. Multiple images, not one. Multiple different images in different places where he appears to be egging people on, if not leading them. Now he says he was there for the bandages? It doesn't make sense. He was also asked... In the te- in the in his testimony about whether he was hired by well, the phrase was worked for the FBI and he said no and there was no follow up. Now there's a lot of ways you can work for somebody. You can be a contract employee. You can be a full time employee. You can be a part time employee. You can be a nothing employee. You can be hired by a subcontractor to do something for someone else, and you're hired by Joe McKillicuddy's uh, uh, construction company, but the contract is actually let out to uh, the Smith Company, and you're not working for and there was no follow-up now again here's my final point on this what you need to know is the january 6 6 select committee there's two two takeaways two takeaways from this wink today one republicans shouldn't fall for uh recon redo making a new select committee they should just use the one the way pelosi designed it to fight back that's number one the second is back to my theme distrust and verify it, maybe Ray Epps is an innocent guy who just wanted to protect his son. I, 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 you know, that's what he says in his transcript, 97 pages of transcript that was released by the select committee on the last day of the new year or the la- second to last day of the week before the New Year's Eve. I don't know. It's kind of what we call trickling out things. And and he says in there that, you know, he, he just was there to help his son and, and bandages. Maybe that's true. It, it doesn't agree with the other aspects of Ray Epps's videoed behavior. Maybe it's true, but when the select committee has failed to address the pipe bombs, has failed to actually give us the context of the failures of law enforcement, how that happened, you have to put your head in there and say, you know what, we can't trust what you're saying. We have to start by distrusting and then verifying. And the verifying has to happen in this case by the Republicans in the U.S. House when they take control in a few days. All right, that's all we got. Take a break. We'll be back. We're going to talk with Aaron Rafferty about his effort to try to get engagement by younger people in politics. Uh, We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Our next guest, I've been looking forward to this. You know, my listeners know, Aaron, that I get emails from folks who are telling me, uh, hey, you want to talk to this guy or you want to interview somebody? And our next guest is Aaron Rafferty. Now, Aaron Rafferty is the co-founder of what's called Battle Packs, and we'll talk about that. He's got a scholarship program and other things. But what drew me into this, Aaron, was the relationship of uh, your effort to promoting uh, better political debate and AI, artificial intelligence and NFTs, which everybody kind of did a crash course on a few, a month or so ago when Donald Trump issued an NFT. So sort of on the edge of the uh, cu- cutting edge of technology, here you are talking about politics, which is as old as, uh, I don't know, Socrates and, and Plato and the gang. So first of all, welcome to the program. Aaron, how are you, sir? 
Thanks, Ed. Do, doing great over here. Yeah, the, there's a lot that is coming together with all of these uh, these different subject matters, especially uh, some of these things that are um, more in the public awareness and potentially even on the edge of of the awareness and on the edge of what's acceptable. Um, so, yeah, very excited to talk about it today. So first, let me ask you your career, because I saw this really cool uh, write up at New York Weekly. Uh, the title is How a Serial Entrepreneur is Bringing nfts to the primaries and so it's kind of fascinating but it, it, the opening sentence is according to blockchain veteran aaron rafferty well i think being a blockchain guy right now because of the uh scandals uh, uh around uh uh what is his initials of uh, a bank and bacon three yeah yeah so it, it, it maybe gets a bad name until then i think people were like wow it must be a guy that's really good at uh computer science and tell me what it means to be a blockchain veteran i mean where did aaron rafferty come from to get to here yeah, so my background really has been in a number of different uh, subjects, and it, it started out in the research space, and that's behavioral sciences um, and really community-based approaches to solve some of the biggest uh, health issues in, in our time. And uh, a lot of these have to do with prevention and how you can help people um, really help themselves, right, and how you can organize communities. And what's blockchain today if it's not uh, – community-focused efforts towards uh, solving big problems for the world. And so that's really what struck me about the technology of blockchain. Um, crypto is a whole different you know, apparatus, a whole different beast where you, know, you have people like SBF uh, who have kind of pulled the rug out from uh, uh, under a lot of retail investors and uh, other, other folks through different you know, fraud schemes. But blockchain as a technology has implications for a vast array of, of different, you know, solutions for, for people. Um, voting is one of them, obviously, and that's one approach that we are taking, but ways to organize communities, ways to reward people for their services and efforts. These are, these are some of the really interesting problems that we get to solve. Well, and this is, and this is uh, what I was going to say uh, for, again, we're talking with Aaron Rafferty and, and uh, make sure Aaron, I will, I will also, but uh, um, uh, to, to promote uh, your, the, best websites for people to look at but one of the things that was describing was you know you 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 were quoted talking about decentralized autonomous organizations these so-called daos where people are uh, connected and they connect themselves there's no one leader but there's this sort of it's a little too simplistic but it's like crowdsourcing or crowdfunding there's this energy and people kind of move along and 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 it's succeeding in ways that are very interesting uh, as you point out um, companies will use it to make decisions and they'll it's sort of so it's a sort of like a voting thing but here's the thing I, I was I mean I'm, I'm now trying to show show off a little bit to try to impress you but Balaji, <laughs> Balaji Srinivasan who I follow on Twitter wrote this published this book online the network state where basically when you're done reading it you think to yourself the technology is going to make it so it's not just that I live a thousand miles from my mother whereas a hundred years ago I might have lived a hundred yards from my mother you know we didn't move very far now you don't even actually it looks like have to be in the same geographic space to be in some kind of relationship that starts to look i don't know at least uh, according to srinivasan like a almost like a a, a sovereign i mean are, are we we're in some really fascinating and maybe a little scary times 
Yeah, we're definitely in a time where people are starting to rethink democracy. They're starting to rethink the way that they view the world and how they organize within the world. And blockchain gives them that ability because it gives you ownership over something that is immutable, right? And it's also public in nature. And it's something that it, you can go back onto the chain, right? If you're if you're on Ethereum as a network, right, you can go back and see what actions people were taking within that. And so when Balaji is talking about his network states, uh, it becomes really interesting for us because we're able to start to see how people can organize around thoughts and uh, potentially ideals and have other uh, you know people organize with them, have voting set up. And it's actually very simple to do this when you're doing it with blockchain versus you know our traditional organization methods of government. So, but when you, when, when, and I'll just because I want to do one digression on that. When you talk about voting, um, I, I think I know the answer. You're going to say, trust me, Ed, you don't know the, the computer science and the programming enough to know it's actually more secure. But, you know, I ran the election board in the city of St. Louis, and I remember vividly it was 05, it was 06 and 07. And I remember vividly the conversation, which sounds so simplistic, but still goes on today, which was, if we're going to have stuff hooked up to the Internet, when do we unhook it so nobody can hack us? Because if it's possible to be hacked, I just believe somebody's going to figure that out. You could be as secure as you absolutely it's like encrypted messaging. I tell people, if you think encrypted messaging can't be backdoored by somebody, you just don't understand human nature, in my opinion. Right. So this is that's the way I operate. So does does this kind of future can you can you overcome what I think is the second of the of the necessary uh, aspects of voting? The first one is competence. The second one is confidence. Can you get the people to believe that the system will be secure? I know 25 years ago, people didn't give their credit card over the phone because they thought it would be stolen. And now we heck, we, we hand it out all the time because we know that the security is caught up. Can we get there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're, we're already getting there, right? People are already voting with their money online and you're, you're seeing this, the credit card is a perfect example, right? It, it took a while for people to get there. It took a while for people to accept that they'd received a package the next day or if not same day with Amazon, right? Um, but if, if you show them that it, it can be done and you show them the proof of that it's working, then the acceptance is probably one of the easier parts. To your point, the security is one of the harder parts. And so the blockchain, when you're actually making um, individual um, instances on the blockchain, that's a fairly secure function, if not one of the most secure functions. It's when you integrate, you know, some of these other um, front ends and Web2 things to the blockchain uh, and, and to what they would call Web3, that that's where you start to see insecurities. It's when you start um, adding um, more complex functions to uh, the, you know, you know to, to blockchain and you start making those things a little bit more automated that's when you start seeing more flaws in the system and that's what's been uh worked out and continually being worked out with uh DeFi. and you you might have seen a lot of DeFi hacks um occurring and so that is working right and mm. it we're getting to a place where it, it will work 
eventually. Um, what we're doing today and what we can see is, is a good use case for blockchain today is the validation of community, you know, organization. So you pointed to DAOs. Um, we're starting to see that DAOs are being um, more effective to enable people to gather around a thought or idea, right? So I don't know if you saw a constitution DAO, right? Uh, you have uh, hundreds of thousands of people come together to put up $40 million to go and purchase a constitution. They voted that they want, yeah, yeah. wanted yeah. to purchase the constitution with their money, right? right? And so now you have this way where you can have one idea. It can be drummed up overnight. And if it's a good enough idea, everyone can gather around it to support a cause. And then that cause could dissolve once the end purpose is met. And then they, they can move on to the next idea, right? And so that's what we're seeing with um, the p- political nature of things where we're actually focusing more on impacts and focusing on college students and how they can really make their voices heard towards certain impacts within the political space, obviously. But um, that's that's where we're seeing a lot of excitement happening. Uh, we're talking again uh, with uh, Aaron Rafferty about his, uh, uh, this idea. This uh, It's called Battle Packs, um, battlepacks.com. Um, it's a little confusing to, in the sense that it's not a pack. If you're talking politics, people think political action committee. It, it actually is directionally that way. But uh, uh, walk us through what this is. And you have, um, I think it was, was it Jack Dorsey? Somebody else had a while ago said, don't go to college right away. If you skip college, I'll pay um, for you to to uh, to work. Was it? It, have been, it wasn't Musk. Somebody like that. Um, and, and that's a little bit of something that you're, you're seeing. But tell, tell me what Battle Packs is. Tell me how it fits together with what you're you're seeing and particularly how you are, are uh, hoping and seeing younger people engage. Yeah. So the idea behind battle packs is that as a person that doesn't typically support with their, with their dollar, um, the political agenda, uh, AKA, you know, packs, super packs, you name it. Uh, you can actually participate in battle packs by purchasing political digital collectibles at, as little as $9 purchased and it amounts towards a vote towards a side, right? And, and that vote actually triggers the, the payment of, of funds to, to nonprofits or super PACs or any impact focused, uh, event driven, uh, product that the people that purchased that digital collectible want. And so you're choosing your side when you come in and you participate with battle packs. And so maybe you support climate change and that makes you more on, you know, the left leaning side, then you're purchasing that on the left and you're then going and supporting that mandate. And you're actually getting to push funding towards that mandate to support your side. And it's really comes down to uh, how many people can we show that this actual process does work where they can mobilize not only their voice, but their voice can amount to, you know, real dollars. You know, we're talking about millions of dollars that they'd be able to, you know, at at some point 
um, support the direction of. So uh, when you say young people uh, in the in the sense uh, that young people engage on this uh, sort of they're they're more open to the technology. They know what NFTs are more. They're paying attention. Were you were you as a concrete uh, sort of answer? Were you helped by Donald Trump doing an NFT that sold out in a, in a minute? In other words, that sort of a whole bunch of people went, oh, I, I, I might want to get into that business. That must have that must have helped sort of break the wall of not knowing what things are. Yeah, so we saw a lot, especially during midterms, a lot of uh, Senate races uh, have very, you know, tight polling, right? Um, And also loose polling. We also saw a lot of, or not a lot, but a little bit of fundraising with NFTs. And then when Donald, you know, came out with his, uh, his 45... Um, That was a different apparatus, right? His was an apparatus that was more towards, um, I believe in Donald's brand. I want to participate with Donald's brand as he grows and moves. And I want to get special benefits of Donald's brand, right? And so it did absolutely help uh, show that, you know, if a former president will unleash or unveil an NFT that's connected to his brand, then there must be more to this stuff than meets the eye. And uh, use cases such as leveraging blockchain for, you know, better polling, better voting, uh, flowing funds towards uh, actual causes and cause-based events and mission-driven events. And especially, you know, you you brought up Balaji's too, um, things where people could organize around ideas. uh, That's when, uh, you know, Donald's stunt uh, does support everything that blockchain could be. Well, and also, and, and it succeeded. I mean, if he'd done it and, and nobody bought it, you'd say, that, I mean, in a way, in a weird way, that he, he sort of proved the market at least exists. But um, so it, it, uh, the difference between candidates and causes, if I can get here, and again, our, our guest is uh, Aaron Rafferty, and uh, his uh, website is battlepacks.com, uh, among his other initiatives, this one that we're talking about, um, that helps engage engagement, the, the idea. But uh, citizens, uh, uh, candidates versus causes. Um, by the way, it feels to me like you're heading into a good well you may or may not be heading into a really good cycle because if there is a primary on both sides and i bet there will be um that i sat on the republican national committee and one of the things i used to bemoan was that the the old model was raise enough money and you can swamp out the other guys and trump changed it because of his earned media but also just the world's changing so fast that you can envision candidates creating um popularity and energy sort of like what sanders did but you can use the technology i think there's really um it's going to be a, a I think it'll be exciting because I don't think Biden will run uh, in the, as, as a Democrat. I think he'll run, I don't think he'll run. Um, but anyway, but 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 back to the the challenges. People like people, right? They love Rand Paul. They love Bernie Sanders. They love Ted Cruz. They love pick a person. It's harder to get them motivated. It seems on on some issues. I guess on say abortion, you can get the pro choice, the pro abortion folks, and the pro life folks, and they'll jump in. Uh, but how do you how do you see that part of it? Because I don't think you. Uh, I mean, it, it can't be that it's just get the extremes on here fighting about um, the the positions, right? I mean, how do you think that plays out? Candidates versus pol- uh, uh, causes. 
Right. I think that's that's the really interesting thing when it comes to how our community is organizing. We have especially college students that are organizing around more of their ideals and they're talking about these things. And so, for example, we actually had an engagement session uh, and we, we, you know, Battle Pack sponsored this engagement session. We had six to eight at, at one time of these students that came on board. And, you know, a lot of them right now, uh, they, they were more Republican focus, but we had some in the middle and we had, you know, one on, on the left and they were talking about the issues, not the candidates, right? I, I think when it comes to college students, they don't care that much about the candidates. They don't know the candidates. They're, they're a lot older than them potentially. And they're caring about, you know, their, the causes, the causes that affect them and the, the, the mission that they have. And so amplifying their voices around these causes is exactly what this community is starting to organize around. And so being able to give each person that voice and that platform on on our platform uh is is exactly what we're doing and having that access via you know nft or whatever collectible or you know membership they might have to give them greater access is is how they're getting more of a foothold in the community and starting to you know amplify their own voices and amplify their their own stance on these issues it's uh, so. Uh, uh, did, what is the take up been? I mean, how, first of all, tell me how long. Again, I guess our guest is Aaron Rafferty, and I will put up on social media links to these different websites and some of the coverage. Um, what is the uh, what's the take up? How you mentioned that session with young people are are people getting it? Are they coming towards it? I mean, how does it how do, how how does your model, a business model, or just an engagement model look in the next? Uh, I don't know, in the past six months and the coming six months. Yeah, so we launched our current engagement model around midterms and that's that's not the actual collectible and really we launched the scholarship for students to participate in this and so what does that look like we we have a scholarship where we partnered with a nonprofit to actually sponsor uh, students who are making their voices heard on our platform and so that means that they're either answering questions they're participating in these engagement sessions and they're participating in such a way where they're they're actually showing face and they're they're providing, you know, context and conversation in the the core issues. And so, you know, we've had thousands of applicants for the scholarship since we launched it. Um, We've had a huge growth on our social medias, and we don't expect that to die down anytime soon. In fact, you know, since the holidays started, we've uh, we've, uh, seen a lot of people contact us and reach out to us about how they could get involved in the next engagement session. And so we're going to be hosting a lot more of those to come mm-hmm. um, in in the new year, um, but we expect to hit the ground running in 2023 with with a vengeance. Uh, obviously, we're only what two months old, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But well, we're, we're expecting it, to hit a huge stride in 2023, and we we want to hit uh, actually colleges specifically. So we we have a few partnerships, one of them uh, being Albion College, yeah, uh, of course, Michigan, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we'll have we'll be hosting an event at that college. 
college in February. Um, but then we, we have a number of other, you know, uh, mandates coming down the pipe where we, we're expecting to hit, you know, potentially half a million, a million students by the end of uh, 2023. Hmm, very interesting. Well, uh, first of all, I think anything that engages folks on the issues and, and gets them paying attention, obviously, I'm I'm all for that. I, I think the great challenge, and I'll come, I'll circle back with you on, on that, is on some of these uh, core, my side being conservative side, you know, on core issues, how do you engage people and get them into it and not just stay locked in one camp, all right, and and, and be and engaging across. Uh, that's very, it's very cool, and I think the technology is uh, uh, coming. I'm not as convinced that we can do election that way for a while but uh if ever but then we can have another conversation about that another time <laughs> so all right i gotta run uh, again battlepacks.com battlepacks.com aaron rafferty's been our guest he's the ceo uh, of standard dow dao and also the co-founder of battle packs we'll talk again soon aaron thank you thanks ed happy new year we'll take a break happy everybody new year. and we'll be right back it's ed martin here on the pro america report back in a moment this is the pro america report on the answer san diego this is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily broadcast launched by Phyllis Schlafly, who served as an articulate voice for traditional values for more than 70 years. Upholding that legacy and himself an author, national speaker, and attorney, here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve was established by an act of Congress in 1975. Unlike most programs to come out of Congress, this reserve was meant to do exactly what the name indicates act as a strategic tool for the United States to deploy in wartime to offset a catastrophic disruption in our nation's oil supply. The first deployment of this reserve was during the Gulf War, when President George H.W. Bush announced a release of 2.5 million barrels per day, but quickly capped the deployment to a total of 17 million barrels when it was discovered that no more was needed to counterbalance the effect of that war. President Biden has released around one-third of the oil reserve since his inauguration, but military strategy has nothing to do with it. Contrary to what the left might think, our nation is not in a war with Russia or any other nation right now. The only pertinent war that the left is fighting is a war on fossil fuels. Even their poorly named Inflation Reduction Act did much more to destroy domestic oil production than to restore it. If America were really in crisis, we would be focused on ramping up production rather than killing the industry and selling off our reserves. The real reason President Biden is selling off America's strategic petroleum reserve is because Americans would never go along with the left's phony green agenda if they knew how expensive it would be for average Americans. Middle class and poor Americans cannot afford radical energy policies. So Biden's handlers hide the horror by artificially influencing prices. The Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a valuable part of our nation's military readiness, but President Biden squanders it for his own political gain. Even worse, he squanders the greater military asset of our domestic energy industry. To truly be ready for any conflict, we must go back to the days of President Trump, when America had the ability to produce all of our energy and then some. That keeps prices low, unemployment low, and profits high for American energy producers. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. America is safe only when America is strong. Our national defense requires the most modern technology and best trained soldiers, and there should be no social politics or idle threats coming out of Washington. At phyllisschlafly.com, we take this work very seriously. Please visit phyllisschlafly.com. 
Thanks for listening, and join us again for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Hey, I- I've, got a, um, I've got an offer for you, and I've got, uh, I've got something that I want to do uh, very much in the next month or so. You know, as the holidays come around, and by the holidays, I mean the great Christmas, as well as, of course, uh, New Year's and all, but also uh, kids are home from school, uh, schedules a, a shift a bit. Um, I-, I end up with a goal of trying to read more books, read more books. And so what I wanted to ask you to consider is send me your recommendations on books to read. Now, I do want your recommendation on books to read, but I also want um, you to send me, you know, not not the books you want me to read that are um, from, uh, you know, your childhood or something. I, oh, well, those recommendations are fine, too, but especially new books, new books. And, and let me explain why. Over the past four or five years, as I've done this radio show and the podcast that we turn it into, I have become more and more convinced of the incredible power and the incredible um, uh, persuasive nature of books. Now, I knew that before because I love books, but I, I, I came to know it in a different, a new way. And here's, here's why. A lot of publishers, the ones that I really like and respect, and I'm going to go through a few of the names, um, they're being creative about the books they're publishing. Right, they're publishing shorter books, longer books, different authors. They're uh, using the ebook format and audio books a lot, and there's just an incredible number of authors. And when someone and I encourage you, if you think you're an author, if you're saying I might have a book in me, when you go to write a book, it it sort of forces you to clarify what you think, and it's always always helpful, in my opinion, helpful for the writer, helpful for the reader. It doesn't make it easy, by the way. It doesn't make it easy at all. Writing is really hard, really, really hard for most people. I mean, some people say they're good writers and easy writers. I I never really believe it. They may be uh, experienced writers and therefore have a a facility for it. They know what works for them and their voice, but still hard work. I remember the late Phyllis Schlafly for whom I worked, and she wrote, I think the title, the total was over 32 books. Uh, Her columns and essays she wrote for about 50 years every week. Every week she would write a column between 600 and 800 words, I think. And and when she would write them, I would see her working on them on Sunday night for present presentation to the editor and the publisher on Monday. And she would just talk about how hard it was to write in, in and get ready for going forward, get you know looking forward. And so I just want to encourage you. And so here's a couple of the authors. Uh, you've heard me talk to uh, the guys at Regnery, Regnery Publishing, which is a part of Salem. And there's a guy named Tom Spence, who is the top guy over at uh, Regnery Publishing. And he's talked to me. We had a long conversation, uh, I don't know, six months ago, about how powerful and how different the industry was for him. And he'd been in the industry for decades, seeing what was really working, meaning what people wanted to read. 
And in particular, uh, he works with um, Regnery, which is uh, owned by Salem Media. He said the the uh, the titles that were about uh, uh, Christian, uh, not just apologetics, but politics, were having a real interest. Anyway, wonderful guy, fascinating guy. Regnery's over there. Al Regnery, who's I think father or grandfather, uh, founded Regnery, and Al ran it for a while. He started a nonprofit with another guy named Eric Campman, and and those two guys call it. It's it's, it's a nonprofit. Because they're being creative about how they can get the system to work. They're not in it. They're both at the uh, sort of um, latter part of long careers in the business. And it's called Republic Book Publishers. And it's been fascinating. Um, it's got a book. It's got a book. Um, Brandon Weikert on space is over there. It's been, he's been an, an eye opener for me. It's all he's all, they also have uh, in their Republic Book Publishing. They have. Um, the lieutenant governor of North Carolina has got his memoirs. Hey, extraordinary. Anthony, Anthony, Anthony Zaccardi over at Post Hill, publishing creative guys. Uh, Humanix, you know, Humanix has published a bunch, especially of uh, David Horowitz and then creative Tony Lyons. He's one of the guys that I've listened to a lot on my show. And he's at Skyhorse, of course, and on and on and on. There's a bunch of, there's a lot of them. There's, uh, there's uh, a, a one, a publisher, Perucci, uh, Perucci Publishing, a fascinating book. So, and you go on, uh, my friend Floyd Brown over at Liftable Media, he's published books out there. Um, you can make a list, and especially, of course, the famous ones. You've got um, Kimball, Roger Kimball at uh, Encounter. Adam Bellow runs Bombardia. Um, and, you know, you could go on and on and on. And, uh, Sophia Institute, I'm looking at my list, Sophia Institute Press. Has been extraordinary. Moody Press does some great books. But my point is, you send me my present my proposal to you is send me your recommendations. If you have a book, and and uh, and let me say this: one of the greatest things that's happened in the last ten years is the ability for people to self-publish. Now, I tend to think you self-publish best when you have editors that join you in the process, right? And and so you're not just you writing it, you put it together, you put it on, you know, uh, a self-publisher. You got to have people that will critically look at it, but it doesn't mean it has to be people in the industry that dominate the industry, you know, and or did in the past. It's shifting and it's been great. So if you have a book recommendation, you know, someone that has a book, send them to me, send the book titles to me, send a copy if you've got a copy or, you know, if you can, and I will, I'm going to try to read a lot of books. And in the beginning of the new year, I'm going to lay out a plan for the first maybe six months of making sure that we are interviewing great authors. And by great authors, I mean authors who worked hard to publish their books. They may be great books. I'll see. But it's it's very, very important and very American and very special for us. Uh, I was reminded uh, Ronald Kessler, who's a prolific author, um, has been on the show and has been talking about how uh, big media is dominated by a certain number of booksellers and that that is what it is, but sometimes they're not telling the truth. Uh, and I think we have more and more. If we're going to doubt the fake news, what the big media has done with fake news on cable TV, on uh, on, on network TV, you, you got to look closer at uh, the publishing and big media and what they've been telling us for a long time. Um, you know, Robert Kennedy Jr. in his books on Fauci and COVID has done more to lay wide open the corruption of science and scientific publishing, both. So there's a lot there. So send me your books. Send me your books. It's my project for the next four or five weeks as we head into a new year and uh, as we're in a new year. So uh, do that, okay? All right, we got to run. Well, to, uh, thank you, as always, to Noah Dingley, uh, Ryan Height, our associate producer, who's been filling in some, too. And uh, thank you. And uh, please reach out and send me your titles. Uh, ed at phyllisschlafway.com. I've told you before. And also through our website. Have a great day. We'll be back. Ed Martin, Pro America Report. This is the 
Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.